Hi, I'm David Freudberg. This podcast derives from the Humankind Public Radio series, which I began hosting back in 1997. Our program recognizes how hard it can be, but also how necessary, for us to hold on to our humanity. So we've sought out people with stories that illustrate how they approach that quest. To aim high, to treat others as we'd like to be treated, to see others as more similar to us than different, to strive for patience and personal grace even in adversity, to be part of the solution, not the problem. We hope our podcast helps to reinforce and inspire your own quest. Thank you. Support for this Public Radio International program is provided by the Humankind Program Fund and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. The fact that a person is deaf and blind, of course, makes people almost shudder if they take time to think about it. And then they go into a meeting, and there she is, smiling and radiant. It was a message of hope. People might say, gee, I wish I had as happy an outlook on life as this woman. The remarkable life of Helen Keller, who rose above her severe limitations and inspired millions worldwide. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. In the late 19th century, when Helen Keller was born, a child with severe disabilities faced a future without the basic conveniences of handicap ramps, without much chance of a good education, without the host of legal protections now in place for the disabled. So it is all the more triumphant that this brilliant girl, who was simultaneously deaf and blind, managed to surmount obstacle after obstacle and to nudge the world closer to humane treatment of a long-neglected population. We call this documentary An Optimist in Spite of All, Helen Keller's Life Story. Sealed off from the world most of us see and hear, Helen Keller spent more than 85 years in opaque darkness and silence. A fever had wasted her eyes and ears at the age of 19 months. Never again would she hear a bird song at dawn or gaze upon the setting crimson sun. But the dual affliction did not imprison her. Although greatly deprived, she led an abundant life. Although greatly saddened, she broke through the clouds and found a way to gladness. Although greatly hindered, she performed far-reaching service to humanity. Her courage gave strength to millions. Those who loved and labored with Helen Keller remember her remarkable story. Helen Keller traveled the oceans, crossed the continents of the world, persuading the powerful of the world to bring their influence to bear, to improve the lot, to improve the circumstances, to provide more opportunity for deafblind people and all those others deprived by force of 
circumstance. There was one occasion, I believe, in St. Louis, uh, in which the crowds were so great that they had to bring in the, the, the troops to scatter them. <laughs> and, uh, oh, she was a famous person, there's no doubt about it. I was with her one time when she was asked how many presidents she knew. She said, well, she hadn't counted them, but it was everybody's service since Grover Cleveland. <laughs> Helen looked like the Queen of England. Uh, she had marvelous white hair, glowing skin, beautiful blue eyes, uh, was dressed very regally. She was a superior human being. That I knew. Because of her afflictions, and also because she had so risen above them. She thought that the gift of life was given to us for a very specific purpose, and that we had to make the most out of it. The association that I enjoyed with her as a professional colleague and a personal friend has changed, I think, everything that I do. Most of the time, people with healthy eyes and ears take for granted the wondrous gift of human sight and hearing. We scarcely pause to marvel at the miracle of just being able to look out on the landscape before us and listen to the panorama of sounds around us. as a child to be stricken totally blind and deaf. Summertime 1886. A locomotive winds through the steamy American South, bound for Baltimore, Maryland. Arthur Keller, a newspaper publisher and formerly a Confederate captain, boarded with his family at Tuscumbia, their hometown in rural northern Alabama. Helen was age six and would recall the journey years later in her autobiography. I made friends with many people on the train. My aunt made me a big doll out of towels. It was the most comical, shapeless thing, this improvised doll, with no nose, mouth, ears, or eyes. Nothing that even the imagination of a child could convert into a face. Curiously enough, the absence of eyes struck me more than all the other defects put together. I tumbled off the seat and searched under it until I found my aunt's cape, which was trimmed with large beads. I pulled two beads off and indicated to her that I wanted her to sew them on my doll. The Kellers have come north seeking advice on Helen's condition. They are referred to Dr. Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone and also an educator of the deaf who takes an interest in the child's unusual case. Although she has the potential to be trained, Helen is in a crude state with no language, no means of signaling her needs except for a few simple hand gestures she has contrived. The desire to express myself grew 
The few signs I used became less and less adequate, and my failures to make myself understood were invariably followed by outbursts of passion. Imagine being cut of all communications suddenly after having been, you know, a bright child. Marguerite Levine, a French woman, was longtime director of the Helen Keller Archives in New York. She was a very lovable child, and all at once she had no way of communicating, no way of expressing. At the same time, she was being bombarded by all kinds of feelings and sensations for which she could not get an explanation. It must have been the most, most state of deepest, deepest despair that any human being can achieve at any age. as if invisible hands were holding me, and I made frantic efforts to free myself. I struggled, not that struggling helped matters, but the spirit of resistance was strong within me. I generally broke down in tears and physical exhaustion. If my mother happened to be near, I crept into her arms, too miserable even to remember the cause of the tempest. The story of Helen's early childhood was memorialized in a gripping stage play, The Miracle Worker, later made into an Academy Award-winning film. The author is William Gibson. Well, she took pe food out of other people's plates. Uh, she didn't, you know, keep herself clean, uh, didn't keep her clothes clean, things of that sort we do know about. I think that she was basically in a, you know, in pretty much an animalistic state. Uh, she had tremendous rages, of course, and by her rages, she was tyrannizing the house, uh, anything to keep her quiet, and uh, this meant that she was deprived, really, of all the possible lessons of an educational experience at the hands of the social group, the family. Helen's state was deteriorating. At Dr. Bell's suggestion, the Kellers appealed to the Perkins Institution, a renowned school for the blind in Boston. The school's director arranges for a recent Perkins graduate, Annie Sullivan, herself half-blind, to travel to Alabama and hire on as Helen's governess. Upon arrival, Annie finds the girl to be very intelligent and very mischievous. Dear child, her restless spirit gropes in the dark. Her untaught, unsatisfied hands destroy whatever they touch because they do not know what else to do with things. It will take an iron will to tame Helen, but she finally met her match in the headstrong Yankee girl who has just arrived. Annie Sullivan was toughened as a child herself while living for six years at the notorious Poor House in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, a dumping ground for society's wretched and depraved. There, Annie learned the cold realities of survival. She was a fighter. I mean, Annie was a scrapper. She scrapped her way through Tewksbury and I'm sure through uh, Perkins and... Uh, and she didn't have much recourse. I mean, she couldn't say, I don't like this child and I don't like this task. She had no job except that. That was it. Uh, so she had to fight it out along that line if it took all summer, as Grant said. Uh, she began writing letters to a sort of foster mother she had. Uh, and those are the letters which then were preserved. I had a battle royale with Helen this morning. Her table manners are appalling. 
She puts her hands in our plates and helps herself, and when the dishes are passed, she grabs them and takes out whatever she wants. This morning, I would not let her put her hand in my plate. She persisted, and a contest of wills followed. Helen was lying on the floor, kicking and screaming and trying to pull my chair from under me. She pinched me, and I slapped her every time she did it. I gave her a spoon and held the spoon in her hand, compelling her to take up the food with it and put it in her mouth. In a few minutes, she yielded and finished her breakfast peaceably. It was another hour before I succeeded in getting her napkin folded. They're extraordinary letters, uh, both by reason of the detail of, of her handling the case and uh, by reason of her understanding. I've got to break her out of this prison she's in, and I think I know I can do this and I can do that, and it doesn't work, and then I'll do this, and or it doesn't work, I'll do that. And it was that perseverance, that, that really the, the indomitable force in that kid. Helen had her own, but I'm speaking of the force in Annie, not to give up in, on all of this. Gradually, Helen's stubbornness begins to give way. She is amused by a finger game constantly played by her new companion. In reality, Annie is forming letters from a manual alphabet developed by Spanish monks as a way of communicating without breaking silence. When she taps a fist into Helen's hand, it means the letter S. The extended forefinger means D, and so on. The role of Annie Sullivan was brilliantly portrayed on stage and screen by Anne Bancroft. I think she had a goal, which was to get through to this, to teach this child language, because she knew that language was what separated us from animals, you know. And um, there's a beautiful speech about language. In fact, I can't even think about it now without filling up with tears. I know one word, and I can put the world in your hand. And whatever it is to me, I won't take less. How, how do I tell you that this means a word, and the word means this thing, woe, or this? We almost live in the garden, where everything is growing and blooming and glowing. I spell in her hand everything we do all day long, although she has no idea as yet what the spelling means. Five weeks have passed since Annie first arrived. Everyone is astonished at the transformation in Helen's manners. Annie's techniques are working, and she insists on absolute control of Helen lest the family interfere. Then one day, an experience would change Helen's life, from her autobiography. We walked down the path to the well house, attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. Someone was drawing water, and my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word water, first slowly, then rapidly. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness, as of something forgotten, a thrill of returned thought, 
And somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. There were barriers still, it is true, but barriers that could in time be swept away. Annie had put more than finger letters into the child's hand. She had placed a key to knowledge that would unlock Helen's cell of sightless frustration and silent isolation. Once liberated, once free to interact and understand, the bright chestnut-haired girl would blossom into a gifted writer, a champion of the disabled, and an inspiration to all humanity. Helen Keller archivist Marguerite Levine. The miracle is the encounter of those two women. That uh, Helen could have gone her way, Annie, a different way. And what a waste, what a waste it would have been. What did they bring to each other that in that encounter formed such a powerful whole? I think a great deal of love. Because I have the feeling that uh, the love of her parents became very ineffective after she lost her senses. But that Annie restored that in her. And of course, Elaine, as a normal child, demanded some love. And Annie was more than willing to provide it because in spite of her rebellious nature, she was a deeply loving person. At 20 years old, Annie Sullivan was alone in the world. Her mother died when Annie was eight. Her alcoholic father was unable to support her or her sickly brother who would die at the Tewksbury poorhouse. In a sense, it was Helen who became Annie's kin. I see an improvement in Helen from day to day, almost from hour to hour. Everything must have a name now. Wherever we go, she asks eagerly for the names of things she has not learned at home and the acquirement of new words affords her the liveliest pleasure. All my early lessons have in them the breath of the woods, the fine, resinous odor of pine needles, blended with the perfume of wild grapes. Seated in the gracious shade of a wild tulip tree, I learned to think that everything has a lesson and a suggestion. Indeed, everything that could hum or buzz or sing or bloom had a part in my education. And he tells of how she let Helen have an egg in her hand at the precise moment it was about to hatch, so that the chick was born in Helen's hand. And, and it was that kind of experience that Annie kept putting in Helen's hand. She wanted to teach Helen everything. Everything, because she herself having been locked away herself in an institution for most of her young life. Can you imagine the day that she got out, what she saw, what she had to learn? And this is what she wanted to teach Helen, was everything that she had learned. And she had no one to tell her how to do that, so she just did it intuitively. I asked myself, how does a normal child learn language? The answer was simple by imitation. The child comes into the world with the ability to learn, and he learns of himself, provided he is supplied with sufficient outward stimulus. 
Therefore, I shall talk into Helen's hand, as we talk into her baby sister's ears. I shall assume that she has the normal child's capacity of assimilation and imitation. I shall use complete sentences in talking to her, and fill out the meaning with gestures when necessity requires. They must have just fed each other with their, with their needs. It must, must have been the electric. It must have been, every moment of the, I mean, they must have been so happy to wake up in the morning. I, can't you see Helen, I mean, running into Annie Sullivan's bed? You know, and saying, come, come on, what's this, what's that? Or, you know, I mean, it, it, she must have wanted to know everything. Whenever I give her a new word, especially a word expressing action, like hop or jump, she throws her arms around me and kisses me. The bond of affection deepened between Helen and the woman she forever after would call by the name Teacher. All the best of me belongs to her, Helen would write. There is not a talent or an inspiration or a joy in me that is not awakened by her loving touch. Through Annie's tutelage, the deaf-blind girl would master a rich vocabulary, would learn to write words on paper, to read braille, and eventually, without benefit of hearing voices or seeing lips, even develop a halting form of speech. Years later, in this only known recording of Annie Sullivan, she would demonstrate with Helen Keller by her side. The thumb resting on the throat, right at the larynx, the first finger on the lips, the second on the nose, we found that she could feel the vibration of spoken words. For instance, the throat, she feels the G, the hard G, G. <laughs> On the lips, she feels the uh, B, <laughs> and the T. And with the second finger on the nose, the nasal sounds, the N, mm. the N. Mm. After her seventh lesson, she was able to speak the sentence word by word, I, I am. am. Not, not dumb, dumb now. No. Alexander Graham Bell continued to monitor Helen's progress, and through him word began to spread of the amazing deaf-blind girl with a quick wit and a sweet disposition. The Kellers agreed that Helen could advance best as a student at Perkins, so at age seven she and teacher relocated to Boston. En route they stopped in Washington and were received at the White House by Grover Cleveland, the first of a dozen presidents Helen would meet. She basked in the limelight and seemed to have an innate talent for endearing herself to the famous and powerful. Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes would write, My dear sweet Helen, it is delightful to find what a world you have made for yourself. You must have eyes and ears in your soul, spiritual organs of sense, which do for you what our outward organs do for us poor seeing and hearing mortals. Among the many renowned Bostonians she would visit as a child, Helen received a lasting impression from her contacts with the famous Episcopal clergyman Phillips Brooks. Only those who knew Bishop Brooks can appreciate the joy his friendship was. As a child, I loved to sit on his knee and clasp his great hand with one of mine, while Miss Sullivan spelled into the other his beautiful words. Once, when I was puzzled to know why there were so many religions, he said, There is one universal religion, Helen, the religion of love, 
Love your heavenly Father with your whole heart and soul. Love every child of God as much as ever you can. And remember that the possibilities of good are greater than the possibilities of evil. And you have the key to heaven. A profound spirituality would pervade Helen Keller's entire life. It seemed to give her strength to meet the exceptional challenges that lay ahead on her path. Resourceful and ever-determined, Helen set her aim on attending Radcliffe, the women's college at Harvard. To meet the entrance requirements, she would have to master classic texts at a time when few were available in Braille. She would have to absorb lectures she could not see or hear, relying instead on Annie's eyes, ears, and lightning-fast fingerspelling. Helen would succeed in prep school and in September 1900, at age 20, entered college. I remember my first day at Radcliffe. It was a day full of interest for me. I had looked forward to it for years. A potent force within me, stronger than the persuasion of my friends, stronger even than the pleadings of my heart, had impelled me to try my strength by the standards of those who see and hear. I knew that there were obstacles in the way, but I was eager to overcome them. I had taken to heart the words of the wise Roman who said, to be banished from Rome is but to live outside of Rome. Debarred from the great highways of knowledge, I was compelled to make the journey across the country by unfrequented roads, that was all. And I knew that in college there were many bypaths where I could touch hands with girls who were thinking, loving, and struggling like me. The rigors of Ivy League education strained the endurance of normal students. Helen was forced to compete with them blindfolded and at times grew exhausted. Annie, too, was taxed by the grind of translating for Helen many hours each day. Teacher's own eyesight, already impaired by a childhood disease, would decline further from the exertion. But there were also easygoing times during the college years. Some of the most delightful were spent in the presence of Helen's ardent admirer, the writer Mark Twain. I told her a long story, which she interrupted all along, and in the right places, with cackles and chuckles and carefree bursts of laughter. Then Miss Sullivan put one of Helen's hands against her lips and spoke against it the question, What is Mr. Clemens distinguished for? Helen answered in her crippled speech, For his humor. I spoke up modestly and said, And for his wisdom. Helen said the same words instantly. I suppose it was mental telegraphy, for there was no way for her to know what I had said. Over the years, many wonderful people gravitated to Helen Keller. In fact, from adolescence on, she was a celebrity in her own right. While in college, the Ladies' Home Journal commissioned Helen to write her autobiography in installments. A book version entitled The Story of My Life was published the year before Helen graduated and has been translated into 50 languages. To the reader, she confides her inner struggle. Sometimes, it is true, a sense of isolation enfolds me like a cold mist as I sit alone and wait at life's shut gate. Beyond, there is light and music and sweet companionship, but I may not enter. Fate, silent, pitiless, bars the way, but my tongue will not utter the bitter, futile words that rise to my lips and they fall back into my heart like unshed tears. Silence sits immense upon my soul. Then comes hope with a smile and whispers, there is joy in self-forgetfulness. 
So I try to make the light in others' eyes my sun, the music in others' ears my symphony, the smile on others' lips my happiness. The early years of Helen Keller, who, although physically blind and deaf, possessed the ability to see and hear much. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Jeff Whitehead and Bill Wangren. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Special thanks to John Corey Oliver, Wendy Sakakini, Roxanne Schroeder, and Bill Kavnis. Music performance by Mark Adams and Sue Shart. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. We're distributed by PRI, Public Radio International. If you'd like to purchase a copy of Humankind by phone, please call toll-free 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. To learn more about this and our other programs and to hear selected episodes online, check our website, humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. We'll give that again in a moment. Support for our program comes from this station and the Public Radio International Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Again, if you'd like to purchase a copy of Humankind by phone, please call toll-free 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, An Optimist in Spite of All, Helen Keller's Life Story, Part 1, is Humankind Program number 75 from PRI Public Radio International. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.